Welcome to Co-Parent Dilemmas, where we give you practical solutions to those impossible co-parents. Diane, we've come to the end. Well, we've come to the end of this series or season two, The Case from Hell, but we're going to keep going, right? Yes. You're not just... leaving me, are you? <laughs> Don't <No>. leave me. <laughs> no, I'm just glad that we found the exit to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yes, but Sarah has not yet. So yes. we're hoping that we will be able to give our listeners continued updates on Sarah's case. But this is an exciting um, episode. It's going to be a double episode because it's 60 minutes and we never go 60 minutes, but we wanted you to hear the conversation that we had with some of our listeners. We did a Zoom meeting with our listeners and with Bill McGee, who's the author of Half the Child, and he talked a little bit about what prompted him to write that novel about alienation. And then we're going to end with an interview that I did with Sarah which I think is really what people want to hear. The only thing about my interview with Sarah, she wanted her voice disguised, obviously, because the case is still pending. And I was disappointed because she has such a sweet voice Hmm. and it made her sound really rough. Yes, it does. (laughs) Nobody will recognize her. (laughs) So so I don't want our listeners to think of her as some rough character, right? I want them to think of her as she is. It's just that we wanted to disguise her voice enough that it wasn't recognizable. So just keep that in mind when Sarah comes on for part two of this episode. So stick to the end. It was an excellent interview, a long interview, and we could only squeeze in uh, so much of it. So I hope we get a chance to hear all of it at one time. Right, right. And a couple things I want to say as we close out this season is that We don't want anyone listening to get the idea that if their case has some of these elements, that they ought to run screaming to their attorney and the judge, oh my gosh, you know, this is the worst case ever, because it might feel that way because you recognize some of the elements. But we do know the vast majority of cases are more complicated. And this was a complicated case, but it's most cases are more complicated to figure out. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. This was kind of an easy figuring out, but a hard resolution. So I would assume most of our listeners have cases that are difficult, but the elements are complex. It's not as easy for a guardian ad litem or a custody evaluator or the attorneys or even the judge to put their finger on exactly what's happening and why. And so that's our experience too, as professionals. Most of our cases are difficult to um, unpack and unravel because there's so many variables involved, Mm -hmm. you know, in Sarah's case, the longer it went, the more clear you are about what's happening. The problem with her case was that um, she didn't have the right eyes on her case. And that's, that's really what we wanted to illuminate and educate about is that you really have to you know, have a team effort if possible. I want judges and attorneys to hear this for that reason. I want clients to know how to be empowered to say to their attorneys, you know, hey, wait a minute. So we hope that's what you learned. I heard a statistic. It was, I'm not sure if it was a hard statistic, statistic or someone was making comparison. But they said, let's assume that 2% of the prison population might be innocent. Okay. okay. Let's just assume small, that. Small and percentage. That sounds like probably a decent figure, right? Mm-hmm. And that means 98% of the population is guilty. But the statistic was, if that's true, that means 40,000 people are sitting in prison without having done anything wrong. 40,000? Yeah. I would not have guessed and it, that. And it made me think about these cases where there's resist and refuse dynamics, you know, Mm -hmm. and hesitate to call any case parental alienation because that indicates that one parent is the culprit. Yeah. And the other parent is completely innocent and the kids don't have anything to do with it. You know, that kind of thing. They're rarely that clean. Um, 98% of the cases involve complex things going on on both sides where both parents have some growing to do most of the time, Yeah, you know, and depending on the ages of the children and cultural things and extended family involvement and what kind of professionals you involve, all of those things matter, right? So I don't know what the statistics statistics are about how many current cases are high conflict 
custody cases, but they're mm. they're probably huge. You know, yeah, yeah I, would th- th- I would say hundreds of thousands of cases if we were to look at just this country alone. Yes. So I want you to think about a similar kind of. If you think about that, probably I don't know. Let's just be really out there and say 5% of those include a truly pathological alienating parent. Mm-hmm. That's still a lot of cases. That's a lot of cases. So we do this because we don't want any one parent. We don't want one parent to suffer this. If yeah. The professionals in the courts can get involved, but at the same time, I don't want 95% of you screaming and yelling at your attorney and threatening to <laughs> No, don't don't do that. Take them don't to court and, no. and sue them or report them to their bar association simply because of this podcast, right? No. So that's kind of my parting disclaimer is that there are a lot of cases that are as bad as Sarah's, mm-hmm. but hers was pretty easy to put my finger on what's happening. The vast majority are not that easy to look at and go, oh, this is, you know, it's a no-brainer to figure out what's going on. So do you have anything you want to add to that, Rick? Yes. And in addition to all that you said about how many cases there are, it doesn't make it feel any better. I liked what Bill said in the interview. Um, Nobody can understand your case because you are in a unique circumstance and the pain is real. Even I think though- he called it the demographic of one. Yes. And so, yeah, hopefully you heard from what this series did was a sense of hope and certainly a sense of support. And we hope that for you. Yeah. One last thing before we jump into the listener um, discussion, I'm excited that we have put on our website, a store and we have become an Amazon affiliate, which means that I've gone out and I've looked at some really cool products to put in the store. (laughs) And so- We've got a little dragon squeeze toy. Uh-huh. You know, if you're if you're using our journal, which by the way, the journal is available on the website store as well as in Amazon. Um, but we have a little dragon to squeeze maybe a stress thing while you're writing that email to your co-parent. Yep. Found this really cool recording thing that you can take any booklet and you can read it uh, in its entirety using your voice and send it off with your little guy so that he can hear your voice reading a book before he goes to bed at the other parent's house, which I thought was a really cool idea. That is Um, a cool idea. So, you know, one day I was having fun just going on there trying to find products for our listeners. So I'd like you to kind of check that out as long, along with all of the non-impossible products that we have too. So, you know, the holidays are here. Yes. Good time to get them for yourself. Or if you are a relative of someone who's dealing with this or, you know, whatever I think might be helpful and co-parent circumstances. So I hope you'll check out our store. Just find us at cpdilemmas.com slash store. Cool. All righty. Okay, Rick, it's, this has been awesome. And um, we hope to do this again some point, yeah, don't you think? Do another, I do. I don't know that I'll call it the case from hell. That sounds mm. too scary. No. But um, if any of you out there have stories that you would like to share with us, um, send us an email. And we'll be happy to look at them. Maybe we'll do another season similar to this. But you can expect that in January, we will be back to doing our normal answering a question each week. Until then, um, the weeks in December, after this one, you're going to hear some of our more popular shows as Rick and I take a little holiday break. Yes. Have some fun with our families. Yes. So keep listening. All right. Now for all of you is the interview with our fans and an intimate interview with Sarah. We hope you enjoy. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. If you don't want to be heard, you can still talk to us, but just let us know if you don't want your voice on our next podcast. Rick will remove that. But I I hope that you will. I think it'll be more interesting for our listeners to hear a conversation uh, with us. So listening to the case, we'll start here. I'll do an introduction a little bit. Um, You know, it was much different for Rick and I presenting this case because we did a whole lot of 
background stuff to get started. So what you heard on the podcast was just a very small bit of what we could have talked about had we had four-hour podcasts, which we did not. That's why we decided to share the case notes. I limited the case notes to things that were verifiable. I spent time talking with Sarah And of course, a lot of what Sarah shared with me were her thoughts and feelings and opinions. And, you know, I wanted to believe her, obviously, but I also wanted to be fair in the way that we presented it, that we weren't just presenting one side. We were also presenting facts um, of the case. So I would just like to throw out there to those who did listen to it. What were your impressions of it? Did it sound familiar to you? Did it sound crazier than anything that you've heard of? Just kind of give me first impression. Janet, you want to start since you've got to go soon? Yes. Yes. It was actually very overwhelming. Hmm. I can't imagine being the people involved in this situation, being Sarah. Um, But I did. I felt like it was overwhelming. It's not like anything I haven't heard before, but it definitely is to the extreme of anything I've dealt with. Um, as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was actually helpful to listen to the judge talk about a way forward for Sarah. And, um, you know, in terms of support of the children, and what she needed to do for herself, I felt like that was that was very helpful. Yeah. As a therapist, what did you find yourself thinking about the therapists involved? I was happy that the therapist that she had advocated for her um, and supported her in advocating for herself. Yeah. So she seemed to be a bit of a hero to me. Yeah. I, um, I, as a therapist, can you picture yourself going that far in advocating for a client? I have certainly encouraged them to go that far to advocate for themselves. Yeah. But um, I I think I might have gotten frustrated enough with the evaluator to also, you know, follow up, maybe write a letter, make a phone call. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because I know some therapists would not, you know, go that far. They would say that's out of my lane. I'm not supposed to be supporting her to that level. But, you know, I, I agree with you. I have gotten to that point with clients where I'm so frustrated with the professionals. Okay. I need to talk to your attorney. There's something wrong here, you know? Right. And I've done so, that with guardians, actually. I've okay. conversations with guardians when I felt like things weren't going in the right direction or I was getting different information. Right. And felt like they needed to know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who else wants to jump in here? Samantha, I know you've had your own experiences with similar kinds of things, maybe not to this extent. Or maybe so. I don't know. Um, I mean, it is overwhelming. It really has been hard even keeping track of who is who and who's done what and all of that. But I think the things that really stand out as a parent um, that are relatable, it's like at what point you, you feel this sense of like helplessness. You can't, you're just kind of stuck in the middle and you're screaming at everybody, you know look at what's wrong. How do you not see it? Mm-hmm. But then you're standing there with your hands tied behind your back. There's nothing else you can do, but hope somebody sees it and hope somebody steps up and helps. Um, so, you know, that's very relatable. And I think, you know, it's easy to think that it's an exaggerated case, but there's parts of it that I think are very relatable to everybody um, yeah. in this high conflict divorce situations, you know, we're all stuck there feeling helpless. Yeah. I literally had a conversation with Sarah after every episode release, just to make sure she was okay. And she would get frustrated because the professionals would say, well, Sarah just needs to scream louder. And she was practically screaming in my ear going, how much louder am I supposed to scream? You know? And I said, I know, I know, I get it. I get it. You know, so it does feel that way. And I, like I said, I didn't include a lot of the emails from Sarah to her attorney in the, um, in the case notes, but there were many, many times where she called him out. And I think she, the last, she's copying me on everything now, you know, the last she copied me, she asked her attorney, she was more bold with her attorney than she's ever been before. I think since she listened to Todd Orston and 
the attorney's assistant wrote back and said, I'm so sorry, but Mr. So-and-so is in the hospital. He had to have emergency surgery. But when you go on this attorney's website, he claims to have this huge team of family law attorneys and they get copied on every email that goes back and forth. And she appropriately said, well, somebody on the team needs to help me here. So one of the other uh, attorneys wrote back to her and said, the reason we can't get a final hearing is because we told the court we needed three days and they can't find three days in a row. That was it. And I was like, you mean forever? I mean, at least tell me next September you got three days in a row. Hey, Amy. And and that was it. That's like she gets these one liners and it, it all it did was make me angrier, you know. So um, she's got a lot to say. <laughs> she's she's pretty fired up. But I, I think it's been really helpful to her to uh, I've been sending her encouraging notes from Facebook and some of the social media. And that's really been helpful to her. And the, just the encouragement that everybody's saying, go, go, keep going, you know? So, hey, Amy, good to see you. Sorry, I was actually listening to the podcast and I'm in, on the West Coast and all of a sudden I looked at my phone and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's 315, oh, which is- no problem. No problem. Well, welcome from the West Coast. So, Amy, what do you think? We just kind of threw out the question, what was your first impressions, last impressions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, a, it. I mean- the whole thing is a, for lack of a better word, a comedy of errors. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel really bad for Sarah because, you know, this is what I think they call like post-separation abuse. And not just that, it's also financial abuse because he's taking advantage. And I feel like this happens a lot more than we realize. And I don't know that the courts are fully aware of it and maybe not even all of the courts are aware of it. Like it's almost like that needs to be a class that these judges take or that lawyers take. I think one of the other things that really frustrates me are the number of lawyers that will take on the ex-husband's case and not go, hey, listen, you're just doing this to mess with your ex and that's not okay. Because I feel like that's where lawyers get a bad rep. It's when they take these cases that they know this person is purposely torturing this other person. Well, we had an interesting talk with Todd about that when he was on, that he says sometimes an attorney doesn't know what he's dealing with until he gets into it. And then once you take the case, you're pretty much bound to be there and be, you know, an advocate, a zealous advocate, whether you like it or not, even if you know they're doing wrong. And that that is hard to swallow in cases like this. I mean, you know, attorneys yeah. are hired to defend murderers, right? And they're still supposed to zealously advocate for them. Sarah doesn't have a zealous advocate. They're doing, to me, that's even more unethical that they're just there's no know, zealousness. There's there's yeah. none. I think I'm more upset with the court on this one. For sure. Um, Even the judge said in today's episode that there were too many judges. Yeah. It's, I think, uh, yeah. And I mean, and one of the things that she said today, you know, that, that I feel like resonated was that she had a 14 year old boy who was bigger than the mom. And even though he shouldn't be with the dad, it was what was best overall. Um, You know, I kind of, I, you know, same thing. I mean, I feel like sometimes you're, you're picking, it's not even necessarily the lesser of evils, but it's what you have to do for just the safety of things. And um, because I saw that the longer I tried to, for me personally, is the longer I tried to fight for what was best for my son, the more he fought against me. And in the long run, is being with his dad the best? No, but I've made peace with it. And I'm watching how even though he said that's what he wants, it has, it's, it's backfiring. It's backfiring yeah. big time. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, I don't like to watch my child suffer, but at the same time, it it is what it is. That's yeah. what he wanted. That's what he told them he wanted, whether he was coached to say that or not. And it's, it's been, and that's an interesting, so it was again, a kind of an interesting thing for her to say as well. Um, yeah. The other Amy, dis- how old is your son? He's now 15. Okay. Okay. The other disparity that frustrates me in this is the financial disparity. 
that the person who just wants to punish their ex that has the money to do it and just break them, uh, break their bank, uh, break up down, and they can't keep up financially, it's that's really frustrating to me. And again, that's the post-separation financial abuse, right? And yeah. there is zero that can be done about that. Like, right. how do you stop that? Right. Yeah. Yep. And, and that's, I, it, it's, I just, yeah, there's no way to stop those things. And it, that's where I wish there was more that could be done. Yeah. Samantha. Bill, you're shaking your head. You want to, oh. you want to jump in here? Cause I see you shaking your head. Bill's an author of a book called Half the Child, which I read, and it's awesome. And it's a novel about um, crazy court systems, of all things. Anything you want to Sure. Well, yeah, no, first of all, thank you, Diane and Rick, for inviting me. Um, I, I think it's helpful to step back and sort of look at the whole ecosystem of how we treat children in the courts in this country. And and the fact is, you know, I, I write fiction and I write nonfiction. Uh, um, I, I've been a journalist for many years, an investigative journalist. And the first rule of, of investigative journalism has never changed. It's follow the money. And far too often, it's a mistake that we all make all the time with this system. It is all about money. And you learn that or you disbelieve that at your own peril and at your yeah. child's peril. And if that sounds cynical, so be it. But that is how it works. This whole ecosystem, it runs on money. And here you are fighting for the most precious thing in your life, your child. And so you're coming at it from that perspective. What struck me about Sarah's case and about every case I've heard about is this sort of duality that on the one hand, every case is different and every case has its own flavor. And on the other hand, you just see the same patterns over and over and over and over again. I mean, what do the courts always say? They always say it's about the best interest of the child. Would that it were. I wish it were about the best yeah. interest of the child because we probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Um, but it never is or rarely is, in my opinion. And so if we focus on the child, then the rest <laughs> falls into place. Right. Um, so, I, you know, when I I'm not I'm not trying to I'm not trying to sell books, even though it is available in print, Kindle and, and audio. But yeah. having said that, um, and we will definitely put a link to to it uh, in our show notes. Just, yeah. Just I've even. read the book and I oh, well, and because I'm in the profession and I know it so well, I thought you captured the dad's emotion so so poignantly. Oh, thank um, you. Because I've sat with those dads sure, feeling the sure. same feelings. And it was poignant in that it felt dads started out as naive right, about exactly. the system, right? right? He was just kind of going along thinking, well, you know, when the judge hears this, the judge will do the right thing, right? Sure, <laughs> then you right. follow that journey with Michael as he, in disbelief, sees what's happening to his child right before his eyes. And then, yeah. then the despair, you know, the, the whole, the cycle of those emotions I'm so familiar with from a professional's point of view. And the effect it has on every aspect of your life, your physical health, your emotional health, your mental health, yes. your finances, your career, your family, friends, uh, it is all consuming. And that's what I was sort of chronicling with Michael but how are these fights usually framed? They're framed as he versus she. It's they're framed versus, you know, one parent versus another parent, right? And and so that's not about the child or the best no. interest of the child, right? Mm-mm. Or people will say, oh, you were in a custody battle. Who won? Well, the answer should be the child won, right? And far too often it's not, right? I mean, that's yeah. how it's framed. Yeah. Um, I, I want to bring up Sarah again. You know, she took offense, I think, that some of the professionals were like, why is she still fighting, you know, and and I think even her therapist told her that she was worried about her safety and that you're going to end up in jail and, you know, maybe it's time to just give up. And, um, but I was most impressed at this woman who for two and a half years, three years really has been having visits at a public place for two to four hours a week with her kids, especially of late, saying, I don't want to be there. I don't like you anymore. (laughs) I might call the police on you. And she just keeps showing up, keeps showing up, keeps showing up. So what is your perspective on her motivation with regard to her motherhood? Um, You know, I think for me, I had to 
I had to stop fighting. It wasn't going to go anywhere. My son was 15. The more I fought it, the more he turned against me. Yeah. Yeah. My ex threatened my now husband with a restraining order for no reason. And my lawyer was like, even if it's unfounded, it will still be on his record. And that could affect his livelihood. And and it, it, it's hard to, air quote, give up. But at some point, I feel like you have to choose what's best for you and what's best for your child in the long run. And it sounds like her continually fighting for her children is what's best for them in the long run. Um, I don't think that's always the case. I do think in this case, I think that it's a testament to her strength that she continues to fight. Um, It's not always what's best. And I think, Diane, I think that's one of the things that you've talked about in the past too, that at some point the kids are just looking for peace. Mm -hmm. And if you can step back to allow that peace to happen, even if it's not right, it's what's best for them in the here and now. Um, I, I'll tell you, I cling to so many things from the podcast overall to to go, okay, it's not great now, but it, it'll it get better. And, you know, um, one of the things I tell people all the time is you have more years, Diane, I'm quoting you, you have more years with your child as an adult than you do when they're children. And don't you want those years with your children? And so... Yeah. Am I missing out on the high school years? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I selfishly think of the things that I think I'm going to miss out on that I was looking forward to as a mother, but at the end of the day, it's not worth my son feeling tortured by that, if that makes sense. And um, yeah, this I is where that. I agree with Bill that every case is different. And it's, and, it's a and war and of the, attrition, really. Yeah. I mean, in, in every way, not just financially. Yeah. You know, so well, and, and who has the stronger resources emotionally, financially, just to, to see it through? Yeah. And not only that, but also the child's need for the approval and affection of a parent. Yeah. And if pushing one parent away gets that, um, you know, my, for example, my son has said, Oh, when I'm 18, I'm never going to talk to you again. And I said, Okay. And I said, You know, I said, Why do you come here then? And he's like, because I have to. And I said, well, I want you to know that I love you more than anything in this world, that you have a home here for the rest of your life. You will always have a home with me. And I said, but if you're not happy here, you don't have to be here because I don't want you to be miserable. And um, he literally shows up every other weekend. Like he, I mean, I I said, he's like, I want to go to my dad's. And I'm like, you're welcome to give him a call. And he never calls him. So there is, I think, a bit of that maybe it's just teenage angst, right? Of just, I'm going to push you away and see if you still stay there. But I love that, Amy, because he's testing you and you are passing with flying colors. (laughs) Thanks to you, Diane. Will she leave me? Will she leave me? And what you're saying is I'm not going to be part of the fight. I'm going to let you decide. But his non-decision is a decision, right? I'm <laughs> thinking of what Kelly Baker said that I think was encouraging for Sarah, and I want to encourage you all, um, that because Sarah had seven or eight years with her kids in those formative years when they were still married, and even after that during the divorce when she had primary custody, those years are so important in teaching values and teaching unconditional love that it's hard to erase that. And so that's some right. of the hope that that Sarah has going forward is that she's shown me, you know, pictures of love letters the kids have given her when they were younger and, and even when things weren't so bad. In the beginning of this case that started in 2019, there were still things they were sending her. I love you, mommy. You're you're awesome. You're my, you know, whatever. There was still hope then because those feelings were still being expressed. Um, And you don't just erase that as if that was never there. That's still in there. It just might take a long time for them to come back to it. You know, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Um, If, if you all here right now had a chance to talk to Sarah and say something, what would you want to tell her? 
I think it's that she's not alone. I mean, I, that, you know, I, I hated hearing that she felt like she couldn't talk to anybody that, you know, she has her therapist, but she felt like she had to isolate herself because she didn't want to have to bring up that her kids weren't living with her. And I sympathize with that because I feel the same way. It's we've, as a society have made it sound strange if a mother doesn't have custody of her child. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes it's just, how do you, you have to come up with, how do you phrase that? You know, I mean, I just, right now I go, he's a teenager. He wanted to live with his dad more, you know, how that goes. And I just kind of play it off, but you do, you, you worry if people are judging you um, as a mom. Um, so I hope that she's got a support system outside of therapy and friends that she does feel safe talking to, because um, I think that that's, it's a, it is a very isolating place to be. And she's been there for so long, especially with COVID. Um, I think it was the custody evaluator that said she needs to make sure that she's building on her life and that she's strong for when they do come back. Um, so I thought that was, you Excellent. know, I think that that's true. Anybody else? It's a, it's a great point that Amy made. And I, I you know, in, in um, Half the Child, it's, it's written in first person. And so the fictional narrator, Michael, is always talking to the reader and sharing observations. And at one point he speaks about his utter isolation, even though he acknowledges he has a very strong support system, which he does. He has a very loving family and friends and some co-workers and whatnot who are there for him. But ultimately, I, you know, what I tried to convey here is that he has this feeling that there isn't a person in the world that understands exactly what it's like to be him in this situation. And I think that's very common. And I've heard that from many readers who have said to me, yes, I know that feeling. You know, and so he describes it in these terms. He says, I feel as if I'm a demographic of one, mm. you know, and he also speaks to the fact that we're, we're not even talking about the people that are working against you, because that's hard enough. But the people that are working for him constantly send him mixed messages. Mm. People that are on his team, people that love him and love his child will say to him, well, you can't let her get away with that. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And then a month later, they'll say, are you still fighting? Can't you guys sit down and work it out? And you're like, well, which is it? You know, yeah, which yeah. would you like me to do? Right. And by the yeah. way, I'm dealing with someone who's um, who's mentally unstable and is a narcissist and will fight to the death over nothing. Um, so do you want me to continue to fight or do not? You know, and, and that's a part of the reality of this too, is that even the people that love you the most, they truly, 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 don't completely understand what it's like to no. be in, in the unique circumstances of your situation. You know, they may have similar experiences, but not yours. And, right. And so that that would be something I would want to say to well, Sarah, you know. If I can like spin off of that, you know, I think it's also like it's great to have a support system, you know, your family, your friends, but it's like you said, unless they're in it they don't get it. Not really. They right. get it from a, a third person perspective, but they don't live it. Um, and you know, that there can be a lot of advice. You know, I know I love my mom and my dad, and I know that everything that they say is to, you know, they want to help me. It's the best of intentions. Yeah. Their intentions are good, but when they went through their divorces, you know, that was 30 plus years ago, the times have changed and things are very different now. And so a lot of the advice that's given is coming from 30 years ago, as opposed to, but you're not understanding what those waters are like right now. Right. You know, right. now it is exactly. not the way that it was. Now you walk into court and talk about abuse and they're going to sling alienation at you. And it almost guarantees you're going to lose your kids. I mean, so it's great to have a support system, but make sure you take everything with a grain of salt and follow your heart and, and only you know what's right for you and your family. Nobody can tell you what's right. I mean, I think finding, making sure, you know, for me, I believe in God. I am a Christian and I rely heavily on him and my relationship with him when things get dark. And I remember, you know, he's close to the brokenhearted and, you know, he will give us wings to soar like eagles and all of the things that, you know, we grow up 
learning as Christians. And if that's not your thing, you know, make sure something of higher power is part of your support system, because this is so much bigger than what any one person can tackle. Yeah. God will leave the 99 to go find the demographic of one. Yes. Anybody else? Uh, Lisa, go ahead. Um, What you just said was really beautiful about finding spirituality. I've also, I've found that helpful as well. And also mindfulness to practice how to breathe and calm yourself in the middle of the storm. Um, Because my only sort of non-dementia family member who's left um, is mad at me because I'm fighting because he has no children and doesn't understand any of it. So I really don't have family. I have groups like this, um, people, friends who I've had to surround myself, you know, who understand um, and groups, groups like this. Um, But also I just want to say mindfulness has really helped me. Meditation. Excellent. Yeah. Anybody else? What I would say to Sarah is to continue to trust her mom intuition. She's been doing that. And, um, she's in difficult circumstances and trying to make the best decision she can based on what she thinks is best for her and best for her kids and to continue to trust that and to remember that she's playing a long game that they will eventually as they're older understand more and she'll have more opportunities to connect with them diane what would you say Oh, gosh, I've said so many things to her already. (laughs) She already knows what I would say. I think what I have continued to tell her, I think what's helped her is me being angry with her. Uh. I don't think she's had a lot of people that, you know, so I'm, I'm coming up alongside her and kind of saying, yeah yeah, this is not okay. And you have a right to be mad. You have a right to scream and yell and be angry. When she sends me copies of what she sends her attorney, I try to write back and say, you go girl, you know, things like that, because she doesn't, she's not married. She doesn't have a partner of any sort. I think her only support system really is her mother. Who's, you know, tired. (laughs) And you always say, Rick, when we teach the classes, you always tell people, you know, when you're needing to lean on somebody, um, don't choose the same person all the time to have a drink with, or you'll make them an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, have a few people, because you and I know that when you're going through something like this, you start to lean on one person and they stop answering your calls because it yeah. can be a lot. Yeah. And I sense that's what's isolating for her is she's tried to reach out to people. But when it consumes your life, it's all you can really say you have going on, which again is why I liked Kelly's advice as well to find another passion in your world. And I know that's really hard because your kids are everything. And um, Sarah has shared with me that she got married older when she was a little bit older and she had dreamed of having kids, you know, all of her life that she just had a natural ability to be a mom. And so this part of her identity is something she just can't let go of. Right. So I, I've been trying to encourage her to not let go of that. That is an important part of your identity, but it's not all she is. Well, and I think it's important to point out too, and and it's something that I've even said to my ex-husband, just because my child is not in my physical care does not make me any less of his mother. When he's, you know, because I know for me, I may still have custody, but my son visits his dad quite a lot. And it's as though I stop existing when he goes to his dad's house, he doesn't inform me of things. He doesn't communicate, um, you know, and that's a problem, especially with an autistic child. Um, but, you know, pointing out, I don't stop being a mother just because he's not here with me. Yeah. So I would really want Sarah to understand that no matter what choice you end up making, 
just because you give up the fight does not mean you're giving up being a mother. That part of you will never change. Yeah. Excellent. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you all. What would you say, Rick? I would say, Sarah, what I know about your case is just what I've read in Diane's notes. And I am so sorry that you have been the brunt of all of this uh, irresponsibility by the court system, by uh, professionals. And by no fault of your own, you find yourself in this position. And the persistence that you have is uh, a strength that is incredible to me. And I would want you to lean on on that. Mm-hmm. I want to take a moment and thank all of you and all of our listeners who took this journey with Diane and I. That yes. um, many times it was very frustrating and made me angry. Um, but I think, yeah, Diane, I think wrapping this up, this is the case from hell. But out of it, Sarah's character in this case from hell is inspiring the strength and the persistence that she has. Yeah. Yeah. I too want to say thank you to everybody, all of our listeners, as well as those that attended tonight. um, Those of you who are so gracious to tell your stories. I appreciate that so much. Bill, thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom. uh, And thank you for writing the book. And I will put links to half the child in the show notes. And um, this has been a a very trying journey, I think, for everybody. And I hope all of you that have listened to this will take care of yourselves, um, because I'm sure it triggered many people as they were listening. And we want you to stay healthy and be healthy through all of it. Hi, Miss Diane. How are you? I'm hanging in there, a little nervous. But I, um, I'm not used to being this person that speaks up, but I'm starting to feel like I'm not the only one. You are not the only one. Okay. And I think everybody wants to hear from you more than anything. They want to make sure you're okay. It's so interesting how many people are just like, have you talked to her lately? How's Sarah doing? You know, they're really concerned about you. And I don't feel like I can really speak to that. So what would, how do you feel right now about the case or what are your latest frustrations with the case at this point? My frustrations is I feel like my family's being strung along. Yeah. I feel like this is designed for one parent to fail. Yeah. But if you show up to the visits, people may ask why she continued to stay in this setup. Why doesn't she just walk away? Mm-hmm. Well, why should a parent like me walk away? I'm innocent of abuse. Yes. I've loved my children unconditionally. Right. So what does that tell my children? I've never walked away from them before, ever. Yeah. Not yeah. since the day they were born. And I refuse to walk away now so that we can give them another thing to hit me on on top of child abuse. Right. So if I don't walk away, at least I can't be accused of abandonment. Right. So I just feel like, in my case, if I don't persevere, how are they going to see what kind of mother I am? Am I going to present as a mother that's going to cave just because I'm in a setting that's confining? Yeah. If I walk away, then it makes it look like, oh, she can't handle. So I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. Right. And I feel like our family's being strung along while this is stuck in the system. Mm-hmm. I think the way this is also set up is it's set up to spin. Yeah. If they can't find something wrong with the mom, they'll try to find something else. Yeah. It seems like they're trying to make a running list to keep this spinning and spinning and spinning. So you just give up and say, okay, let's just mediate. <laughs> but that doesn't solve anything. No, and I don't know if you heard the judge in Sunday's episode, but she said this is not even appropriate for mediation. With this much conflict, it would be a waste of the money of the parties and time to even try to mediate it at this point. 
But yet you had a judge who said, well, mediate and come back in five months. <laughs> it, it makes no sense. This whole setup makes no sense yeah. because it's already been exposed before that I wasn't abusing. Yes. But this avenue keeps on being utilized because it's working for that parent. Well, it's working because your child is getting older and older. And at some point, the court will give her a choice and, or, you know, allow either one of your children to say, I don't want to see my mom anymore, which would make perfect se sense after all this time. Why would a child want to continue doing what you're forced to do with them? There's no kid I know that wants to meet their parent in a park for two hours when they could be at home talking with their friends on their phone. But <laughs> this is why. And this is why I think I'm saying there's a cookie cutter approach that's being utilized, probably not just with me, but other parents as well. Like right. I stated, it's set up for failure. Yes. Keep this open long enough so um, one parent will either walk away or if they do continue, they're um, it's set for failure. At one point, Sarah, I know that you were considering hiring a supervisor so that your kids wouldn't be able to make some of those claims. And what happened with that? I know the supervisor was quite expensive, but what were you told by uh, your co-parent about that? Um, he didn't agree to that. And this was a couple of years ago. And right. I don't think he agreed with that because he wanted it to be not successful. That's what right. I'm thinking. If I remember correctly, he said, that's not what the court order says. So please follow the court order. Right. And I don't think your attorney or even the custody evaluator encouraged that. And it was something no. that you could have paid for, or they could have, the court could have caused him to pay for to stop some of these calls to defects and the police. And you couldn't even get that accomplished, which I found very interesting. And I think that supports what you're saying about it just being set up for failure. You've tried so many times to figure out how to make this more successful. And at every turn, you were shot down, which, of course, leads you to the belief that people don't want you to succeed. Correct. And yeah. so, so it's designed for failure. It's designed to spin. And they kept it open long enough so they could turn around and say, oh, the children are comfortable now. We shouldn't move them or they're old enough now to make their own choices. Yes. And so what ends up happening with that is now you're allowing an alienated child or children to make a choice that's already alienated. So what do you think they're going to pick? Sure. The sure. parent is stuck sitting at a table for four hours. Yes. Or one that where they could go into the house, uh, sit down, invite their friends over. Well, and I think you and I have talked a little bit about this before, that when a parent starts in on the alienation of a child early on, they can accomplish a lot of things to the point where then they can just sit back and watch, the show. watch it play out, right? Watch the show, because they've already put enough ideas in the child's head that they no longer have to continue the alienation the child takes up that mantle on his or her own and and goes with it. And then the parent can kind of step back and say, I'm not doing anything. Me. Wasn't me. They're just saying what they feel. Yep. And that's such a common thing with alienated children. Diane, can I go back a little bit? You're asking sure. me what I'm doing now. Yes. And the way these visits are set up, like I said, it's not only designed for failure, but I think it's also set up that promote further alienation and isolation. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to find a solution and a pathway back to be reunited as a family, not suggest that it's too disruptive for the children. Yeah, I think I'm tired of hearing that, oh, we can't move them now. Uh, they're comfortable. Well, <laughs> you know, the holidays just went by. And this alienation doesn't just affect me, but it permeates through my whole entire family. Sure. I show up to a visit and the stepmom, her parents get to spend time with our children, yeah. but mine do not. Yeah. So it's not all about me. It's about my whole entire family. Where's our relationship with yeah. our children? Where's their grandparents' relationship 
Yeah. It's also one-sided. And I'm not just talking about the holidays. I'm talking about every day, sure. the day in and day out. I'm missing out on school activities, school events, yeah. graduations. I still am not able to enter their school. Yeah. I'm not privy to the things that they're working on. Yeah. I can't set 500 feet within the school. If mm-hmm. I do call to ask, hey, how's it going? Everything has to go through my ex-spouse. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, it's been over a year that I've received a progress report regarding how my children are doing in their education. Yeah. I am completely removed. Yeah. So yeah. this CPO has done a lot of damage. Absolutely. So yeah. how are we doing? Not only do I feel strung along, but I feel like um, the situation is going to continue to spin and mm-hmm. the same thing is going to continue to go around and around and around until we get in front of the judge and find a solution that reunites my family yeah. together. Um, let's talk a little bit about, we called him Dr. Schnauzer in the okay. show, the custody evaluator. Everyone seemed so impressed that your attorney was not giving you a right recommendation. The other attorney was misconstruing the recommendation for their own purposes. And you got a meeting with the custody evaluator after, by the way, many, many requests (laughs) to get him to communicate with you. And you were able to write all those things down. And then what happened when you sent it to the opposing attorney? What did your attorney do with that? We all found that quite amusing, actually. And even the judge said in this past week's show that she didn't have a problem with that at all because of the circumstance that you were in. Well, he wasn't very happy with that. But what would he like me to do after waiting? uh, This has been going on now close to four years. Right. What would you like me to do? Yeah. I want my children back. Yeah. Want some form of normalcy. How long do I have to wait here? How long does my family have to wait? Right. And the recommendation, I'm still shocked by it because you make a recommendation, but you're keeping the children in the house that promoted this. Right. So again, I'm very confused. Right. Right. Even though the custody evaluator said to your attorney, according to the email your attorney wrote to you, that you did nothing wrong. Yet they wanted to continue down this road of you not having the time that you deserved. Well, it's par for the course, Diane. It's kind of astounding to me. There are so many markers that indicate emotional abuse or parental alienation to the nth degree, how the custody evaluator didn't see that as a problem. I am so baffled because he told me that um, he did see it and that it was his job to educate the court, but yet visitation didn't move right. at all, except maybe for an additional hour. Right. And that's uh, why I think it, it's uh, I'm sad that a guardian ad litem wasn't appointed in this case because the guardian ad litem would have had more power to make recommendations in the moment to the court where the custody evaluator is just doing a evaluation and with a report. And then they'll, like he said, educate the court or make a report, which he didn't do any of that. And my understanding is he didn't go to the mediation. He's never testified to this day. And I'm thinking the only record we have of the result of his work is the one you have. Uh Uh-huh. I'm beyond baffled. And, and this is that doesn't thing. make any sense None to me. None of this makes sense. Right. And here's another point I wanted to make out. With all the investigations that I've been subjected to through defects and police coming to the door, and now the current evaluator, not once but twice, the court, current court evaluator, didn't substantiate abuse. Right. If my ex-husband genuinely thought there was abuse, along with the stepmom, because she inserted herself too, and they're all tag-teaming together. If they genuinely thought there was abuse, shouldn't they feel relieved that all these investigations show no abuse? Shouldn't they stop and say, hmm, 
what's going on here? And kind of bring the children in and say, come on now, what's going on? Yeah. All the, all the professionals don't seem to believe there's abuse going on. Right. So he keeps beating to this drum. So this yeah. tells me that's what their agenda is all about. Yes. Yeah. Either get out of child support, get child support, or keep the children to themselves or control at all costs. Yeah. So right then and there, it shows their agenda and why and how this can't be seen for what it really is. Yeah. This astounds me. Me this too. Is, 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 look, there may have been eight judges and several attorneys, but at the helm of all this is my ex-husband. Yes. And I'm just floored by one professional can't get to the bottom of this and speak up and say, this is just noise. Right. Let's right. bring these children back to their mother and their mother back to them. Yeah. What's the six, what's the best pathway to do this? Instead yes. of spinning this around with a record on a record player. Yep. Make it make some kind of avenue and pathway back. Yeah. They're making this um, convoluted and they're presenting this as if it's all difficult. No, it's really not. This is a dad that has to win at all costs, who's utilizing the loopholes in the system and all the various organizations to hurl TPOs and protective orders at a mother to gain leverage and custody. That's it. It doesn't matter if there's 10 attorneys, 9 attorneys. Look at the paper trail. This yeah. is all based on false allegations of abuse. Right. Land the darn plane. Yeah, exactly. And I like that you said, you know, a loving parent, a caring parent who really was interested in the best interests of their kids would have either started to question himself after a while that, wait a minute, maybe my kids are making this up exactly. or or after so many reports that come back that nothing's happening, feel some sense of relief. Thank God my kids yes. are not being abused like I thought. And that's, they, a, that's a very good point. You know, it's disheartening that a system can be utilized. And if you've got the funds and the finances to hire an attorney and you can get the kids aligned, you've just won the custody modification or just been awarded custody. Yeah, I think it's disgusting. So I think that's one of the reasons why I want to speak up, because I think this avenue of utilizing protective orders as a way to gaining leverage in a custody modification yeah. needs to be stopped because it's hurting people that really do need them. And yeah. it's holding the system up by utilizing these TPOs as, as a weapon. And if yeah. it's happening to me, it must be happening to others. And I just I just want everyone to know that. And I want a pathway back to my children. You know, so how do you deal with this on a day to day basis? I mean, that, that's been a question that I've gotten from a lot of people on social media. Like what? Because a lot of people re have responded that they are going through a similar thing, maybe not as long as your case. But after a year or two, you become very weary and court worn. And they're curious how you keep your strength up. How do you keep your emotional strength while all of this is going on? Do you compartmentalize? What do you do? Diane, I, there's a, a couple of things I do. I have, first of all, I have a very strong mother. She was a positive role model for me. She taught me how to be a mother. Mm -hmm. And I think she was a fine example of perseverance. Mm -hmm. So I utilize my mother is my role model, along with self-talk. Come on, get up. You can do this. Put one foot in front of your other. So it's a lot of self-talk. And just knowing that I'm telling the truth, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I think the truth should set me free because there's no way that a mother should be separated from her children and places a visitor and a weekend and maybe eventual weekend parent for false claims of abuse and yeah. ones that haven't even been substantiated. Right. In addition to the positive self-talk and the exercising every morning, I have relied on therapy mm. and a wonderful therapist that has given me my aha moments. 
and has explained to me the behaviors of why the children are doing this because it appeases their father. So putting all that together, I realize that my children are alienated and I have to stay strong for them. And I have to get up and I have to put one foot in front of the other Yeah. because I have no choice. If I cave, then nobody can see how great of a mother I really am. Yeah. Not a perfect mother, but a great mother. Yeah. And so that's why I refuse to buckle. And I have to stand tall like a statue because yeah. I have no choice. If I don't do it now, this alienation is going to continue and continue and continue and get worse and worse. And God darn it, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I'm not going to allow false allegations of abuse and loopholes in the system to be utilized to pull my family apart. Right. I refuse. Good and one way or another, I'm going to be heard. And I just wish that I had someone that was strong that could advocate for my family. Yeah. Because what's happened here is wrong. Yeah. And this is another thing that makes me feel strong. Is I want to stand up and use my voice. So if I can help others, then that makes me get out of bed too, is helping others. So yeah. this isn't just about me anymore. It's about every parent and every grandparent that has been traumatized by a dysfunctional court system and an ex-spouse that has to control yeah. at all levels. Yeah. Thank you. I want to say thank you, um, Sarah, for doing this because um, it's it's been terrible for you, but I hope that showcasing this hasn't traumatized you further, but I hope that it's given you some strength. But I know for Rick and I, looking at it every week and talking about it and talking to other people, it's made me angry. <laughs> it really has. And I've gotten in touch with some of your anger because it just seems so unimaginable that you could pay lots and lots of money in the six higher, figures now. yeah into six figures and to have those people railroad you into a system that is taking you down a dark hole and you're helpless to do anything about it you know and and I'm I'm assuming that there's a lot of you know, dads listening who have experienced this as well. So when you say there's no reason a mother should not be able to be with her children, the dads feel the same way. They, and I think what we've learned from this and talking to other people is this isn't about gender. Mm -hmm. It's not it's about a, it's about personality disorders and parents Correct. who hate their ex spouse. I think as we've been saying more than they, love and want to protect their children and, and correct and it's also for grandparents because grandparents can be in this too so that's why i wanted to speak up because yeah. it's you're right it's not just moms it's moms it's it's dads it's grandparents yes and i'm a grandparent and i can't imagine if somebody told me well sorry you can't watch your grandchildren grow up because of this conflict and the court is allowing it to happen. It would drive me nuts. It's it's so wrong because that mom or dad only has one chance at parenthood. We can't get this time back. No, we can't. And so all these magic moments that mom and dad, like myself, miss. And yeah. it's unfair just so one parent could have all the control and the children to themselves. Yeah. Children aren't chess pieces. No. They can not. be moved around. You know, and some of the parents that are manipulative use our children and weaponize them. And it's mm -hmm. wrong. And someone needs to say something. And I didn't ever think it would be me. But if it has to be me, then so be it. But I hope my voice makes a change for the better, yeah. for the good of the whole. No parent should be put in this position. It's wrong. Well, listen, um, our time is up, but I just can't express how much I thank you. Rick, thanks you for um, letting us into your life and allowing us to expose that for thousands of people who listen all over the world. We have listeners in Europe and 
Korea and Canada and, you know, Australia, we have a lot of listeners in Australia. So, um, and what we're finding is that it kind of works the same everywhere. You know, the United States is not unique. So I just want to say thank you. And I hope with all my heart that you doing this will start a movement. And I hope that maybe people will reach out to you and, and want to assist you or help you in some way. I know that we've had a couple of listeners offer to give you their contact information because they have a group of parents who get together and talk about this stuff and, you know, have offered their support. It would be great if some professionals would also do the same, but I hope so. Well, thank you very much. And um, we will be checking back in with you occasionally to see what actually happens in this case, because I think we're leaving our listeners hanging by it still being pending. So we'll keep checking back in and hopefully we'll hear some good news. So I hope so too, Diane. And, and right. thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank, thank you for you. giving me a voice and a yes. voice for all the alienated parents that are being falsely accused and the system utilized and the loopholes in it. Yeah. So a parent can win at all costs. Yeah. Thank you for having me and I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. The information contained in this podcast is generic. It must not be misconstrued as constituting legal or psychological advice. Decisions relevant to any specific individual, family system, or case require the direct evaluation of skilled, child-centered professionals.